0: Lesson 8 for November 12-18, to Innocent Blood Sabbath Afternoon, November 12 Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've been fascinated by the story of Job and his interaction with you and the interaction of his friends. And sometimes for us it's confusing, but we need to be able to trust in you. And we pray that as we open your word this week, that we may know that you are the one who provided the blood that each of us is saved through, that of your only Son, Jesus. But Lord, there are still confusing things in the book of Job, and we ask your Holy Spirit to guide us as we read, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let's read that again. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Algerian writer Albert Camus struggled with the question of human suffering. In his book, The Plague, he used a plague as a metaphor for the ills that bring pain and suffering upon humanity. He depicted a scene in which a little boy, afflicted with the pestilence, dies a horrific death. Afterward, a priest, who had been a witness to the tragedy, said to the doctor, who had been there too, "'That sort of thing is revolting "'because it passes our human understanding. "'But perhaps we should love what we cannot understand.'" The doctor, enraged, snapped back, "'No, father. I have a very different idea of love, "'and until my dying day I shall refuse to love a scheme of things "'in which children are put to torture.'" That's by Albert Camus, the book The Plague, and it's page 218. This scene reflects what we have seen in Job, pat and lame answers to what doesn't have a simple solution. Job knew, as did the doctor here, that the answers given didn't fit the reality at hand. Thus, that's the challenge. How do we find answers that make sense of what so often seems without sense? This week, we will continue the pursuit. Sunday, November 13, Job's Protest Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar had a point. God does punish evil. Unfortunately, that point didn't apply in Job's situation. Job's suffering was not a case of retributive punishment. God was not punishing him for his sins, as he would do with Korah, Dathan and Abiram, nor was Job reaping what he had sown as can so often be the case. No, Job was a righteous man. God himself says so in Job 1 verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And so Job not only didn't deserve what had happened to him, he knew that he didn't deserve it. That's what made his complaints so hard and bitter. Question. Read Job chapter 10. What is he saying here to God? And why does it make so much sense considering his circumstances? Job chapter 10 beginning at verse 1. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, Do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man, that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin, although you know that I am not wicked, and there is no one who can deliver from your hand? Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you have made me like clay And will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews and have granted me life and favour, and your care has preserved my spirit? And these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked... Woe to me! Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery? If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me, and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me! I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death, without any order, where even the light, is like darkness. At times of great tragedy, have not those who believe in God asked similar questions? Why, Lord, did you bother to create me at all? Or, why are you doing this to me? Or, would it not have been better that I had never been born than to have been created and face this? Again, what makes it all harder for Job to comprehend is that he knows that he has been faithful to God. He cries out to him, Although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Job 10 verse 7 There's a difficult irony here. In contrast to what his friends said, Job was not suffering because of his sin. The book itself teaches the opposite. Job was suffering here precisely because he was so faithful. The first two chapters of the book make that point. Job had no way of knowing that this was the cause, and even if he did, it probably would have made his bitterness and frustration worse. However unique Job's situation, it's also universal in that it is dealing with the universal question of suffering, especially when the suffering seems so greatly out of proportion to whatever evil someone might have done. It's one thing to go over the speed limit and get a speeding ticket. It's another to do the same thing to kill someone in the process. And so to finish today, what can you say to someone who believes that he or she is suffering unjustly? Monday, November 14, Innocent Blood We often hear the question of innocent blood. The Bible even uses the phrase innocent blood in Isaiah 59 verse 7 and Jeremiah 22 verse 17 and Joel chapter 3 verse 19, usually in the context of assault or even murder of people who didn't deserve what happened to them. If we use this understanding of innocent blood, then, as we all know, our world is filled with many examples of it. On the other hand, the Bible does talk about the reality of human sinfulness and human corruption, which brings up a valid question about the meaning of innocent. If everyone has sinned, if everyone has violated God's law, then who is truly innocent? As someone once said, Your birth certificate is proof of your guilt. Though theologians and Bible scholars for centuries have debated the exact nature of the human relationship to sin, the Bible is clear that sin has impacted all humanity. The idea of human sinfulness is not found only in the New Testament. On the contrary, the New Testament exploration of the theme expands on what was written in the Old Testament. Question. What do the following texts teach about the reality of sin? 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, Psalm 51 and verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9, who can say I have made my heart clean I am pure from my sin and isaiah chapter fifty three and verse six all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and romans chapter three verses ten through to twenty as it is written there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands there is none who seeks after god they have all turned aside they have together become unprofitable there is none who does good no not one their throat is an open tomb with their tongues they have practised deceit the poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Besides the clear testimony of Scripture, anyone who has ever known the Lord personally, who has seen a glimpse of God's goodness and holiness, knows the reality of human sinfulness. In that sense, who among us, we're going to skip for the moment the whole question of babies and young children, is truly innocent? On the other hand, that's not really the point job was a sinner in that sense he wasn't innocent any more than his own children weren't innocent and yet what had he done or they done to deserve the fate that befell them is this not perhaps the ultimate question for humanity in regard to suffering contrary to his friends defenses of clay and as we read in job 13:12 job knew that what was happening to him was not something that he deserved And so to finish today, how does the experience of knowing God and His holiness, which makes our own sinfulness painful, help us to see our absolute need of the cross? Tuesday, November fifteenth, unfair fates. Question. Read job chapter fifteen verses fourteen to sixteen. What truth is Eliphaz presenting to job? Job chapter 15, beginning at verse 14, What is man, that he could be pure, and he who is born of a woman, that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man, who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? Again, Eliphaz was speaking truth, as did the others, this time in regard to the sinfulness of all humanity. Sin is a universal fact of life on earth. So is suffering. And we all know all human suffering ultimately results from sin. And there's no question that God can use suffering to teach us important lessons. As Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 129, God has always tried his people in the furnace of affliction. It is in the heat of the furnace that the dross is separated from the true gold of the Christian character. There is, however, a deeper problem with suffering. What about the times we see no good come from it? What about the suffering of those who don't have the dross separated from the gold in their character because they are killed instantly? What about those who suffer never knowing the true God or anything about Him? What about those whose sufferings only made them bitter, angry and hateful toward God? We can't ignore these examples or try to put them in a simple formula. To do so would perhaps make us guilty of the same errors as Job's accusers. Also, what good arises from the fate of animals in a forest fire who are slowly burnt alive in a horrible death? Or what about the thousands of people killed in a natural disaster? Or what about civilians in war? What Possible lessons could they have learned, or their families when their families are swept away with them, and one could reasonably ask questions not just about Job's ten dead children but about his servants who were killed with the edge of the sword, as it says in Job one fifteen or those burned alive by the fire of God in verse sixteen, or the other servants killed with the edge of the sword in verse seventeen. Whatever lesson Job and his accusers might learn, and whatever defeat Satan will face through Job's faithfulness, the fate of these others certainly doesn't seem fair. The fact is, these things are not fair, are not just, and not right. We face similar challenges today. A six-year-old dies of cancer, and that's fair. A 20-year-old college girl is pulled from her car and sexually assaulted, and that's fair? A 35-year-old mother is killed, she has three children, in a car accident, and that's fair? What about the 19,000 Japanese killed in the 2011 Tohoku earthquake? Were all 19,000 guilty of something that made this a just punishment? If not, then their deaths were not fair either. These are the hard questions. Wednesday, November 16. Sufficient for the day. Question. Read the following verses and think about the immediate fate of those depicted in the texts. Then ask yourself the question, How fairly was life treating them? Job chapter 1 verses 18 to 20. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and worshipped. Another one in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and killed him. And Exodus chapter 12 verses 29 to 30. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was a house, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And second Samuel eleven seventeen and Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. And Jeremiah thirty eight and verse six. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water, but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. And Matthew 14, verse 10, So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. The Bible reflects a harsh fact about life in our fallen world. Evil and suffering are real. It's only a superficial reading of the Word of God, pulling a few texts out of the whole context that could give anyone the idea that life here is fair and just and good, and that if only we remain faithful to God, suffering won't come. Certainly, faithfulness can reap great rewards now, but that doesn't mean it provides an absolute barrier to suffering and pain, just like Job. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a powerful homily on why we need to trust God and not to worry about what we will eat or drink or wear. And Jesus used examples from nature as object lessons on why we can trust in God's goodness to meet our needs. He then included these famous words from Matthew 6.34, "'Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself.'" Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Notice, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Jesus wasn't denying the presence in our lives, even the daily presence of evil, from a Greek word that can mean badness, depravity, and malignity. If anything, he was doing the opposite. He was acknowledging the prevalence and presence of evil in our daily lives. How could he not? As the Lord, He knew more about the evil in the world than any of us ever could, and all of us certainly know a lot about it already. So to finish today, who hasn't tasted a bit, or maybe a lot, of just how unfair and bitter life can be? How can focusing on Jesus' acknowledgement of this evil's reality help to give us comfort and strength amid it? November seventeen things not seen question Read Proverbs chapter three and verse five. Though it is such a common text, what crucial message does it have for us, especially in the context of what we have been studying this week? Proverbs chapter three and verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Though the case of Job is extreme, it does reflect the sad reality of human suffering in our fallen world. We don't need the story of Job, or even the other stories we can read in the Bible, to see this reality. We see it all around us. Indeed, to some degree, we all live it. In Job fourteen one and 2, we read... Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow, and continueth not. So again the question we struggle with is, How do we account for suffering? The kind that seems to have no sense to us. That kind in which innocent blood is shed. As the early chapters of Job have shown, and as the Bible elsewhere reveals... Satan is a real being, and is the cause, directly or indirectly, of so much suffering. As we've seen earlier in this lesson quarter, particularly lesson two, the great controversy template works well in helping us to deal with the reality of evil in our world. Still, it's hard to understand at times why things happen that do take place. Sometimes, many times actually, things just don't make sense. It's at times like these, when things happen that we don't understand, that we need to learn to trust in the goodness of God. We need to learn to trust God, even when answers are not readily apparent, and when we can see nothing good coming from the evil and suffering around us. And so to finish today, Hebrews 11.1 reads, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. From the things that we do see, how can we learn to trust God about the things that we don't see? From what we have read in the book of Job so far, in what sense was Job learning to do just that? How can we learn to do the same? Friday, November 18. Last Sabbath's introduction began with Albert Camus, who wrote a lot about his struggle for answers, not just to the question of suffering, but to the question of life's meaning in general, which suffering made only more problematic. As with most atheists, he didn't make much headway. His most famous quote shows how little, and it comes from the myths of Sisyphus and other essays published in 1955, and this is page 3. There is but one serious, truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. End of quote. For sure, the question of human suffering is not an easy one to answer. The book of Job pulls back a veil and shows us a picture bigger than what we might have seen otherwise – But even when we read it all, the book still leaves many questions unanswered. There is, however, a crucial difference between those who struggle for answers to the question of suffering without God and those who do so with God. Yes, the problem of pain and suffering becomes more difficult when you believe in the existence of God because of the inevitable problems His existence in the face of evil and pain bring. On the other hand, We have what atheists such as Camus don't have, and that is the prospect of answer and of resolution. There is evidence that Camus later in life had wanted to be baptised, but he was killed in a car accident. We have the hope that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation 21, verse 7. Even if someone didn't believe this promise, or many of the others in the Bible, that person would have to admit, if nothing else, how much nicer a life would be now to have at least that hope, as opposed to the prospect of just living here amid our toils and struggles and then dying forever, with it all meaning nothing. And that brings us to our one discussion question for this week. One argument that people bring up in regard to the question of evil is the idea that, well, yes, there is evil in the world, but there is also good, and the good outweighs the evil. The first question would be, how does one know that the good outweighs the evil? How does one make that comparison? The second question would be, even if true, what good would that idea do for Job or others amid their suffering? German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer used a powerful example to debunk that whole notion of some sort of balance between good and evil in this world now. He wrote, The pleasure in this world, it has been said, outweighs the pain. Or at any rate, there is an even balance between the two. If the reader wishes to see shortly whether this statement is true, let him compare the respective feelings of two animals— one of which is engaged in eating the other. End of quote. How would you respond to the idea that good somehow balances out the evil? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled The Devil's Lies, Part 1. Rui lived with his parents in Portugal. When he was seven years old, his grandparents died. Rui wanted to know what happened to people when they died, but his uncle, with whom he'd gone to live, didn't have the answers. Rui began a long search for answers. He started by attending a Sunday school near his uncle's home. Hoping to find answers to his spiritual questions there, he often recited the prayers he had memorised, but he couldn't seem to bridge the gap between himself and God. Rui bought a Bible, hoping it would help him to understand God, but because he had been taught that common people can't understand it, he placed it on a shelf of honour and didn't read it. Then one day he moved the Bible to clean the shelf. The Bible flipped open to Exodus chapter 20, Rui noticed that the page heading said, The Ten Commandments. He sat down and read the chapter. He had memorized the Ten Commandments in church, but he was startled to find that the commandments in the Bible differed from those he had memorized. That Sunday, he asked the priest why the commandments he had learned in church differed from those in the Bible. He was disappointed when the priest simply told him to follow the commandments of the church and ignore the Bible version. Rui's frustration grew he stopped attending the church but the emptiness in his life remained rui remembered hearing his relatives say that his grandmother used to speak to spirits rui wondered whether he had the same ability feeling frustrated because he couldn't find the answers to his spiritual questions in church he decided to seek the answers from the dead he went to meetings to call on the spirits and soon began to sense a spiritual presence with him Soon he was deeply involved in the spirit world. He found a book on witchcraft and began studying it. But some of the instructions were so horrifying that he destroyed everything he had that related to the spirits. He kept only his Bible. Rui again began searching for answers about God. He attended several churches and asked many questions, but what they told him left him confused and frustrated. And to get the rest of this story, we'll need to read the continuation in next week's Inside Story. Have a great Sabbath. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.